Once there was a stunning show of over 20 paintings by the artist Pierre Bonnard at Aquavella Gallery in New York City. And three artists each went to see it separately and chose a single work. They then came together in a podcast episode to celebrate Bonnard's mischievous visual wit. And those three artists were Jennifer Coates. It's a little dirty, but glowy. Elizabeth Condon. Oh my God, he's so delicious. And yours truly. He's a bad art student. (laughs) That's why I love him. I'm calling us the Bonardians. A Bonard a trois, if you will. Join us for a deep look at three of his paintings from the show as we delight in each other's art nerdery and unique brand of painterly looking. You don't want to miss this. It's a good one. Be right back with Jennifer and Elizabeth. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Joining me today are two dearly beloved friends and friends of the pod and sometimes co-hosts, Jennifer Coates and Elizabeth Condon who truly need no introduction, but who are here today for a very special type of episode that I've not done before on Pep Talks, um, because this time we're here to weigh in on a single special exhibition. That exhibition was Bonard, the Experience of Feeling at Aquavella Gallery in New York, uh, the Uptown location, which presented over 20 paintings and has sadly since closed but what a show it was. So we're going to talk about it. Hello and welcome back, Jennifer Coates and Elizabeth Condon. Hello, Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Bonard. I'm so glad to have you guys. I'm calling it a Bonard a trois. And Jennifer, I know this was your idea originally, so thank you so much for suggesting it. And we decided to make that idea a reality by each of us here today choosing a single work from the show and talk about why we loved it. But I kind of feel like I should give a mini bio of Bernard. I'm sure everyone listening knows all about Bernard, and this is completely unnecessary, but just in case, uh, we might want to refresh our Bernard facts. I'll make it really speedy. So hailing from Paris, Pierre Bonnard was born in 1867 and was a founding member of the Post-Impressionists. It was a group called the Nabi. He was influenced by Japanese printmakers like Hokusai, and he painted luminously colorful landscapes and domestic scenes featuring family members, such as his wife, Mart, and his illicit golden-haired lover, René Monchati who tragically committed suicide in 1923 after Bernard married Mart. He also had an affair with someone named Lucien Dupuis de Fresnel, and he is rumored to have had a son with her, because I don't think that he and Mart had children, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, He lived in Paris, but like many city dwellers, he had some vacation homes. 
And his first one was in a town or an area called Vernon, which is near Monet's Giverny, the site of all his water lily paintings. And then later he moved or he had a home in Le Canet, which is on the French Riviera. And he moved there around 1926. He didn't work from life, notably, but he worked instead in his studio from photos, sketches, and his imagination. And he often painted on unstretched canvas because he liked to crop at will, and he disliked a predetermined rectangle. And there's a lot of other Bernard facts, but I think that's good for now, and we can flush it out as we go. So I guess let's get on with the show. Um, Jennifer, do you want to go first with your painting? I can't wait to hear what you chose. I would, I would love to. Um, I chose Morning at Le Canet, painted in 1932. And God, I, w- I was so excited this morning thinking about talking about Bernard with you guys. Um, <laughs> and I, I did my usual, Amy, hot dogging it up until the very last minute. Wait, we should hot pause dogging. and define for those who might not know yeah. the definition of hot dogging it. I just jump in without too much prior thinking, but at about 10 minutes to to our meeting time, I, I, I just did a, like a scan and I, and I took in some stuff and I, and my brain got all fiery with excitement and some, some ideas and some facts. So I took some notes in a, in a sort of limey green colored pencil, which I think that Bernard would appreciate the color that that I took the notes in. He so, would. And um, also, you're, I feel like you're at your best when you're hot dogging. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so <laughs> when I was at the show, I mean, you know, as a painter, the thing that strikes me first and where I get like giddy is when I see a painter making paintings with smaller paintings embedded within the paint. So there's like, play on composition with the way the view out the door, that landscape out the door is cropped by the segments of four window panes. And even that one, it looks like a, a railing outside the window that even subdivides it more. So, I mean, how fun is that for us painters to just kind of like groove on um, the, the, the decisions he's making to crop mini paintings within the larger painting. And then the the tablecloth, the little tabletop scene there with the um, I guess she must be mixing something. For a minute, I was like, is she writing something down? But that's not how you write. She's like <laughs> gripping something as if she's stirring. And I I have a whole history with the checkerboard tablecloth, which was my um, entryway into food paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, where I thought, oh, the tablecloth is like this grid and everything that happens on top of it is like a spill of food. That's like an abstract expressionist painting in the field of the tablecloth. So for me, looking at a tablecloth painted by Monard with with these still life elements on it, you know, makes me think that that's another way to express a painting within a painting. And of course she's stirring something. So she's making a little microcosm painting herself. And I just love the scene of these two people that are together in the same space, but they're both absorbed in their own thinking. So they're very interior. And it makes me think with her eyes closed that everything happening around her is like a byproduct of her sort of hallucinatory, like vision, her imagination, the way like a a singular 
brain consciousness merges to try to understand the world or outside it. So there's like interiority and exteriority, but the magic of paint expresses the exteriority as like a byproduct of what's happening inside her. That's what it makes me think about. So because, you know, I like to do research. Yes. Um, And so I was thinking about how Bernard was part of the Nabi movement. Yeah. And what a weird group of painters in the late 19th century that that included, which was Bernard, Guillard, Gauguin, Paul Serousier, and a couple of Paul Ranson, Ranson, yeah. um, some eccentric, underknown other, other painters. And um, so there wasn't really a, a unifying aesthetic to the Nabi movement, but the word Nabi translates to prophet. So oh, they really? were kind of, yeah, self-styled prophet, the new <laughs> kind of painting. And some of them were interested in like occult practices. They would depict, you know, women in the woods in Breton, like, you know, having these kind of mystical experiences. And, you know, some of them were affiliated, like Gauguin was a theosophist. So, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of this kind of mysticism. And I was thinking, I always felt that Bonard and Vuillard, like we're, we're off on the side from that because their stuff is so, you know, in the domestic sphere. So what does that have to do with mysticism? But I think it's in there. You know, I think there's like an attunement to, to color vibrations. There's an attunement to like the, the proximity and separation between figures, this kind of dislocation of the, of the figure, of the insular self in relation to the environment around it. So that was kind of cool to remember that, that connection. And I had read also that um, Bernard liked to always have his models moving. He never liked to have them in one place. Oh, really? Um, and he would often paint from from memory also. So that gave this distractedness, the distracted interiority that's depicted in this painting. It's like, how do I say it? There's There's distractedness, but there's moments of contemplation that we get to look at as a viewer. And... Thinking about um, his paintings being done in the interwar period in Europe between World War One and World War Two, like how does that manifest in his work? You know, I don't have like a very specific theory about it, but it made me think of some of the the writers from that period in Europe that I liked, where they have a kind of a realism, but there's like there's this unease, there's this kind of like something's wrong, something weird happened in the past, and anticipating of something coming up like a, you know, catastrophic kind of weird vibe of the memory of the past and then maybe pointing towards something in the future. So sometimes I like to kind of read that like dis-ease into the work that's being made during that period. And because in New York City today, we've got the, the, the forest fires from Canada coming down and like making our air really, really hazy. And so this morning I was thinking, oh yeah, like there's a haze in Bernard and I'm not saying there were forest fires happening nearby, but, but it made me think of Monet's paintings of London during the years of intense pollution and the atmosphere changing and the sunset colors changing. And so he had this thick crusty surface and lots of lavender, like lots of these weird pastel colors to express atmosphere. It's thick, it's loaded up with paint. 
And so Bonard may not be expressing like the effects of pollution, but he's got Monet in his system, right? He's got Turner in his system, people who depicted atmosphere with crusty physical paint. So I started thinking, well, okay, it's not, it's not pollution, but what is it? It's like the air is thick with something. Maybe it's thick with like missed connection. Maybe it's thick with people like the kind of existential condition of like interiority and how how do we how do we meet the world of objects and other people like how do we do that so i i feel for me bernard is just this rich stew of pulsating color and brush strokes and it, it, it sort of elevates this domestic subject matter and takes it into this whole other level like you know what is it what does it mean to be to be a body, to be to be a body with a brain that can't ever know really what's happening around it, and that's my little weird um, jag. I love this- that so much. Um, I was so interested to hear you talk about atmosphere because somebody who lived in Paris and might have seen that sort of smog of the Industrial Revolution coming in this painting, which I. Disclaimer, I almost chose this one too. I loved it. I, I find that that charcoal black on the window on the on the French door, which is so funny because we call it a French door, but because they're French and they're in France, they call it a window door. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> anyway, so on the window door, there's like this charcoal black and um, you know, this kind of he's in the countries in this sparkling, beautiful beachside town on the French Riviera, but he can't yeah, help but remember the, there's this carbonized, like char grilled <laughs> door. <laughs> yeah. Also, when you I loved your observation about the picture in a picture because I just interviewed uh, Catherine Haggerty on the podcast and we were talking about this term called the Drost effect, D R O S T E. It's a picture in a picture. So oh, God, you know, I'm happy to have a word for it. There's That's a word so cool. for it. It's like when you see like um, Matisse's The Red Studio, you'll see paintings of his paintings in the studio in the painting. That's a Drost. Right. Drost I love that. <laughs> I, that just gives me such happy, happy feelings. <laughs> so I want to jump in with a couple things. I've been looking at this really incredible book by Lucy Whalen, Pierre Bonnard Beyond Vision. Um, And so she purports that um, throughout his career, Bonard viewed art as a synthetic construction in a system of signs, a, quote, series of colored patches that unite to form the object. He frequently expressed his uh, distaste for representational practices that, by contrast, take as their aim the analytical likeness of objects, at least partly on the basis that unavoidable sensory errors and biases render such aims futile and false. Yet, as she will demonstrate in her book, it is the very same intractable errors of the senses and adventures of the optic nerve that Bonard's work never ceased to explore and exploit. So she suggests that he's navigating between the conflicting interests in art as a series of signs and in the perceptualist structure of vision. And in his late career, he uses one to prove the other, decentering the role of vision in representation by expanding on its possible errors and adventures. And so I think that this idea or what Jennifer is talking about with the knitting together of patches of color and the kind of atmospheric space that implies atmospheric conditions and beyond that, life conditions, circumstance, um, 
that Bonard is making tactile the exteriority that, that Jennifer mentioned. Also that this particular painting, the proximity of white, the heavy use of white lending luminosity to bright colored spots, specifically a sunroom at Les Bosquets, a Naples yellow sunroom directly across the hall from Bonard's studio. It is very Naples. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> but look at that cool wall. It's like Naples yellow with, I don't know what's in there, but that's, that's, that abstraction so of the guy's head is like, I mean, how beautiful is that? That's like a, that's like a brushy, I don't know, Rothko or like, you know, Philip Guston in his abstract expressionist period. It's just, it's a little dirty, but glowy. Dirty glowy. I love that little red head. That's what attracted me sort of floating up there. And, mm -hmm. and it was interesting what you said, Jennifer, about the models. He preferred models in action. That's a pretty difficult way to work. I mean, he's working from imagination, but still like you have to invent a lot. You can't just copy what you see yeah, but it's like it's like he he had some kind of unruly energy like he wanted to be aware of things moving around the, the the constant motion of things which like you feel in his paintings so so intensely I mean I loved learning that like oh of course you know that makes a lot of sense that he would want things to be literally moving around him like, his little brain was on fire <laughs> it was totally on fire but to me like the painting is elevated by that weird levitating redhead like I think if the redhead wasn't there it just wouldn't be a Bonard it would just be this beautiful scene of a woman at a table with a gorgeous French Riviera landscape outside of a inexplicably sooty uh window door it's, it's so true it's like she that that figure it's it, it's psychologically gives complexity formally gives complexity gives it like oh that's space that's way behind and like it's such a great tool to just give you a sense of depth and like, you know, is he just like a byproduct of her, of her thought process, you know? Yeah. Cause he pops, <laughs> he pops right out of her head in a really weird way. Exactly. <laughs> like, is there someone in the middle of her and him? Right. There's some kind of weird, you know, obstacle between them. He's so like a sneaky. newspaper. Yeah. Maybe it's, a, he's so tricky. Like that is all the things you're not supposed to do. <laughs> I feel yeah. like this is an Amy Toledo painting in the making. The woman <laughs> with a, a like pop bubble, vestigial man, like bump on the head. Yeah, she's just having a little dream of a red-faced blob. Uh, I, yeah. I can get behind the blob. But I like, Elizabeth, what you said about the, was it you that said it about the white? You did. Oh, it's a quote. Yeah, it's a quote. Yeah, that's how I, I mean, because people are so articulate, like I just put it together. But yeah. In proximity, you mean the white in mm -hmm. proximity to the yellow? Yeah, yeah, and how it how it operates on her head, the white, those little patches of white really activate that strange haze of I don't know. There's must be like green in there. There's red. There's yellow. But it's somehow the white is what makes everything look rationally, believably like hair. And you know, one thing about the white door. I mean, like he's a big grid person. I mean. And that's something like this kind of tabletop puzzle game that he plays in almost every painting. Like the doors, the two recesses in the doors, one is a, 
I don't know what that is, a burnt sienna, Mars violet, both of them mixed. I don't know, but that's what it looks like on the screen. And then on the other one, it's gray. So they're winking, you know, they're winking spatially, just like the black and green soot on the two right panels of the door, you know, contrast with the left hand, white, white. And then the white spills on the right hand side of the painting into this yellow recess in which the head floats. And that kind of winking of the door frames and the asymmetrical layup of the sooty doors compared to the wall on the other side have, I mean, there's whole stories in them that encapsulate everything we've been talking about from the Drost effect to the atmosphere and, and climate change. I mean, I just, he is a clever cleaver. <laughs> totally. I mean, as you we were talking, Elizabeth, about the burned doors, the charcoal doors, my eye goes down to that bowl, the glass bowl, and how the bowl is rimmed with a similar kind of dark, dark gray. And then you just bounce around like you find it in the tablecloth and her shirt. And then, you know, oh, that's the square above recessed, like in the door is also lined with. So there's like this story of of kind of staining and charring, maybe like lurking in all the little definitions of the forms. And, you know, it's some, I mean, and I just want to bring up more text because this Wayland book was really good. Actually, my husband is just such a passionate Bonard fan too. We have a, oh, really? a, pretty, a pretty serious <laughs> library. Um, okay. So, you know, Amy and I touched on this in a previous conversation, but I think it bears tabling right now with this painting. Um, Picasso, you know, Picasso felt like Bonard was just an idiot and couldn't make up his mind. And I found some text about this. Um, yeah, I know, but it's really interesting what Picasso accuses Bonard of yet again, going back to the description of the painting by Jennifer, which extends again, to use her words beyond the exteriority of the figure into the social and climactic conditions, atmospheric conditions of the time. I think that that Picasso's criticism of Bonard is an equivalent to that to or it it showcases the difference between the two painters and their thinking about where the perspective of the painter is. Um so if I may can I read? Yes, please. Okay. We'd love the it. the apparent indecision of Bonard's work lay at the heart of Picasso's tirade against him recounted by Francois Gillot, deceased yesterday, June 6th, at 101 years old in 1964, in her book, Life with Picasso, which I think as a 13-year-old, I must have read 150 times. <laughs> Quote, that's not painting what he does, Picasso declared of Bonard. He doesn't know how to choose. For painting, Picasso asserted, is a matter of seizing the power. And painters like Matisse are always able to make an intellectual choice about colors. But this, Picasso claimed, is just what Bonard could not do, instead constantly altering his painting as the motif changed over time. When Bonard paints a sky, perhaps he first paints it blue, more or less the way it looks. Then he looks a little longer and sees some mauve in it, so he adds a touch or two of mauve. If he looks long enough, he winds up adding a little yellow instead of making up his mind what <laughs> color the sky ought to be. The result, Picasso bitterly claimed, is a potpourri of indecision. <laughs> to this onslaught, Picasso adds another gripe, reproaching Bonard for the relative homogeneity of his painted surfaces, the way he fills up the whole picture surface to form a continuous field with a kind of imperceptible quivering. 
but with a total absence of contrast. You never once get the big clash of symbols which that kind of strong contrast divides. This is Whelan. What Picasso's criticism comes down to is the way that Bonnard's surfaces seem to unfold through a sequence of small decisions made along the way with no limit to their reworking and no commitment to implementing an image decided upon at an earlier stage in the process. Mm. Picasso was not a fan of nuance. He took a long time to critique him. I love this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, Waylon is a, is a young and enthusiastic researcher who I think has a real feeling for the way that Bonard's moving models and, and incremental decisions create a uh, knit, if you will, uh, a web of, of beingness that extends beyond any one parameter, something that Picasso might not, as a progenitor of cubism, might not be able to extend past at that moment in history, you know? So he's like linked to this planar dissection and, you know, the importing of collage on the surface, yes, but not really, not really whim to subjectivity in the way that Bonnard sequestered from Paris with his longtime partner who took a lot of baths, <laughs> you know, just had a very different reality and, and approach. Um, Picasso too, like you don't, you could see why Bernard was getting under his skin because he's just like, I'm going to paint these ladies on, you know, this <laughs> this hot young things I've like conquered. I'm a conquistador and I'm just going to paint these like trophy paintings of these women I've I've taken and uh, I'm going to be a man about it and I'm going to be strong and muscular and direct. And, and then here comes this like sensitive poetic soul who's subject matter is basically nothingness <laughs> you know and who who gets who gets lost in this haze of being of course picasso is going to be uh like annoyed almost like i feel like picasso embodies toxic masculinity sometimes well you know just in terms of chinese again you know i managed to work it in every conversation but <laughs> um in in i think I think that the small figure in the large nature, which is a trope of uh, mountain water painting, is in the Western perspective impossible, where all the mobility comes from the single point perspective of the of the painter. And I think Bonnard, with his incremental decision, starts to move away from this. We can see in the painting before us the way that yellow becomes orange and tell, and and so many incidents, if you literally trace the evolution of those two colors mashing up, they're doing it in so many different ways from the railing to the halo, to the tabletop, to the hand, you know? So it's, it's, it's just like this, this massive story of becoming that is, that is not a typical Western human centric perspective. You know, the house becomes the, the interior becomes like the protagonist. Light becomes the protagonist. Again, Wayland's point, but she's not wrong. And so, so Picasso just can't even get there. You know, cubism for him carving up the form, the form is still really in terms of consciousness or perception. It still hinges on that singular form of the human body. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. But I do, I thought Picasso thought of himself as like this God, you know, 
and definitely, and I, think, I think Bonard is a lot more humble. And- yeah, well, it's it's just making me think about Picasso's competition with Matisse, right? About like, you know, Demoiselle and the Joy of Life. That time, I think that Bonard builds on Matisse, and so it probably pissed Picasso off. But in a way, like also, it must have really pissed him off because painting like these kinds of paintings that refer to paintings within them, refer to their materiality, to their being madeness. That's a byproduct of cubism that probably Picasso didn't anticipate. You know, this like this type of painting couldn't have happened without that. And it was just something he it was a way of 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 engaging those principles that he hadn't thought of and he wouldn't think of because agreed addressing something different yeah that it's a really good point again yeah. bonard was an whalen sorry you guys i really went crazy here i'm just blowing it all on this painting um in a good way like this it's such a great important conversation jennifer to your point about the competition with matisse i think you're so right and matisse and i mean this is just something that's hard for us to imagine now so far in history but matisse and monet were both in touch with bonard you know like Mm-hmm. They wrote each other letters and stuff like that. Just Monet was mind. his neighbor, basically. I mean, it's shocking. Oh. And Monet's like, come over and look at my really cool, you know, like lake paintings or whatever. What and they were but... both like Japonese. <laughs> like they I know. Japan, <laughs> Japanese art. <laughs> and I think that Picasso couldn't foresee this kind of feminization to use a to, to just layer this up even more. Uh, you know, of cubism. I think that's a really good point. And okay, anyway, um, here's Waylon. Bonard was an artist caught between generations and movements. On the one hand, he pioneered the modernist approach to art that would shape the 20th century. The tough figurative representation is purely contingent and founded on nothing but a series of devices. On the other, he remained a painter of the 19th century and that he never gave up painting intimate spaces, which by his late career came to mean not just small rooms, but any space made to feel seductively present and palpable to the viewer as if it were their own point of view. And this is really to Jennifer's point about the cubism as he wrote to his friend George Besson in 1942, me, I float between intimism and decoration. We do not ever reinvent ourselves. And to that, I would add that he added the large scale of decoration. So he is taking it into what Picasso might say is, you know, what Picasso might perceive as gendered territory. Yes, that's great. Uh, it's all great. Like all, everything, this whole conversation is smoking. Amy, good idea. And thank you. That was Jennifer's idea. Uh, just, Jennifer, good idea. I'm just facilitating. Thank you. <laughs> and Jennifer, your commentary on that painting was so revelatory for me. I'm so glad you got it instead of me. Like, I just loved all your insights. Um, I, I didn't even think about the cubism connection. It was just such a brilliant read. Thank you so much for... Thank you, guys. This is so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Thank, thank you. Um, and thank- I thought that because we were talking about the halo on the woman who I believe is Renee Monchati. Uh, did I already mention that I that's French? I think that I it's probably not a translation, but I like to think of it as my cat. Monchat, Monchat E, my cat E, my caddy, because because um, there's so many cats in Bernard's paintings, so I like to think of 
I think I like to think of her as Renee, my caddy. But anyway, Renee Monchadi is in, is one of his mistresses and she's in the foreground and she's got a glowing head of blonde hair. And when Elizabeth chose her painting, I'm, I'm quoting from a text. The quote was, that hair shone like a helmet. <laughs> and um, so I was wondering, Elizabeth, can we come to you uh, for your selection? We can, and I'm going to try this share screen thing because I like having the painting here. It's really I, nice. We should have, yeah. in all the times Elizabeth and I have done this, Jennifer, we never considered doing this. I know, we just, but I mean, it's it's a very grounded discussion. It makes for a really grounded discussion. It never occurred to yeah, us. Oh my God. It's great. We all can go, oh yeah, I see the charred window. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it adds. That's so it's so funny. It, it, Thanks. Okay. Okay. This Lush. is like how cubism turns into intisma. Intinisma. This is how in this is how movements oh. happen right here. I want to be a I want to be a member of intimisma. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. That's Let me tell our listeners what's happening here. This small painting, it's 26 and an eighth by 21 inches, oil on canvas from a private collection. It's called Le Chevelure d'Or, Golden Hair, 1924. It is of his mistress, uh, oh, Renee Monchati. Monchati, and it depicts him and his eventual wife and companion of many years, Marta de Melignier. That is her assigned name, but she was really born Maria Borson, the daughter, I think, of a seamstress. Anyway, and I just want to say why I chose this painting in context of the show. I was really rooted in those first two rooms of the gallery for quite a long time, kind of transfixed. No, absolutely transfixed by the way Bonard was depicting these baskets of fruit in these small paintings. And just that the basket had so much life and that these mashings of marks were creating these strange tableaus of high lit fruit. And then as I moved deeper into the front large room, there was this painting segueing into the second room of these two figures mashed in the top of the painting against this enormous basket of fruit at the bottom with what looks like an utterly oversized coffee cup to the right and then a tiny bell or eggplant to the left and it just really struck me and I think looking at the color of the painting one of the reasons why it goes back to the first painting we looked at in terms of the puzzle piecing parts that move together but I wouldn't be able to recognize that in the gallery I mean in the gallery I was just so transfixed by the glistening red and the glistening oranges that, and then the glistening, really on fire gold hair, um, a helmet, truly a helmet shielding this, this dark toned face. But those dark tones are just rich malaise of like blues and oranges and Mars violets and magenta violets and deep ultramarines. I mean, just like this festive fiesta of color jammed up in the top of the painting. Okay, I'm rhapsodizing. Um, but I like um, it. I like your rhapsody. Yeah, but but here, okay, but I'm just going to take you from the bottom to the top of the painting. Actually, I'm going to take you to the middle first, then I'm going to drop to the bottom and then to the top. But no, I'll start with the bottom. So <laughs> the well, no, I'll start with the horizon line because it's really important. That it it's it starts almost to the middle of the painting on the left-hand side, but is disrupted by Rene Monchati's arm. 
and then it drops to reveal her her bust down to right above her waist. Um, and there's a small triangle that divides her left arm, our right, from her body, which is another chance to fill with the dark purple that's infusing the shawl on Monchati. And also, okay, I'm already too confused. Let's stay on the horizon line. So the horizon line starts middle left, it drops and is bifurcated by a triangle. Then the other arm comes in and intercedes. And then the weird oversized coffee cup on the right, there's a small point at which the line in the middle continues and then it rises up on the right. So it's like this truck wreck of a horizon <laughs> line. It's it's compiled of all these different surfaces. And what's weirder still, it's framed at the bottom part of the painting by this halo of very smeary yellow and very light, like an, uh, I, I don't know, like a yellow ochre maybe, or a Naples or both of those with some white in it. Cause it's really bouncing. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's like a frame for the hair and everything to happen above, but it's really pretty discreet. But because this is a Sotheby's auction reproduction of the painting, that image is just stellar. <laughs> like, clear. buy it. <laughs> yeah. And somebody did. Yeah, it's in the collection of Ambassador and Mrs. Felix Rohatin. Well, it was, but it was a wedding gift from Andre Meyer, who acquired it in 1947 from Marcel Capferrer in Paris, acquired in 1925 by Bonnard's Gallery, Bernheim Jeune, Paris who acquired it from the artist in 1924 when galleries used to buy from artists in order to sell, which I think is another conversation we can have. <laughs> at some point. Um, and, and so Rohatin sold it in 2020, I think. And that's uh, why we've got seller. access. Yeah. Yeah. He was the seller. Um, all right. Coming back. So this bifurcation, which is already, let's say it's like a, it's like cars piled up on each other or at the very least, somewhat like a hill hike, a hiking path on small hills. Like a rocky, uh, a rocky hillside. Yes, like a promontory, <laughs> like a promontory <laughs> and its surround moving from one side of the painting to the other. But that is really this dividing line framed at the bottom half of the painting by this big basket, a big shallow basket with a glistening handle piled up with fruit. And in between the cramped space, the raised Japonisme space of the basket and the tabletop is a small plate or a pattern of the tablecloth. I don't know, but it could be a small plate, China plate with this very soft green color and, and the Naples yellow color that surrounds the bottom of the painting. And that little plate is dematerialized between the very forward-facing and looming basket of oranges and fruits, and then the upper torso of René Monchati. So not only is that weird, so you've got two different paintings connecting through this middle line, but then you've got Marta, uh, however you pronounce her name, jammed up in that right-hand corner. And if you stare long enough and just look at their shapes, you've got these, you've got the mountaintop terrain of the dividing line. Then you've got these, I'm just going to call it Mars Violet for short, but again, it's like- Now I want to get a tube of that. 
Yeah. Oh, Mars violet. I swear to God. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'm promoting my own. It's my favorite color. And then it's set up. I mean, it looks like it could be a burnt sienna that's optically mixing with an ultramarine blue and a magenta violet. And that could get the same effect. But it, on the left-hand side of her shawl, it looks like Mars violet. But those two shapes, one is like closing the half circle of the coffee cup. And then the other shape is a shawl that's sort of geometrically lavished across the chest of Renee Monchati. So, and then these two shapes have an escape hatch with the chair, with like a frame on the panel on the back. There's some orange panel that's framing their heads. And so, so there's this weird kind of suspended cross plane that's just as jagged as the tabletop with the objects in front of it that are blocking the straight line of the tabletop. So there's these two weird jerky, like Mars violet and white shapes that are sort of almost unfolding as opposites of each other. It's like, it's mind blowing. And then, okay, so that's one thing. I just have to rest. <sighs> and then, and then there's also like, then when you look at the tabletop and the panel behind them, which is incised with a thin line of, again, a dark, let's say, neutral tone, um, you also have the framed Naples yellow foreground of the white plane of the table, and then the, the darker line kind of articulating the incision of the burnt orange panel behind the two heads. And these are like also like a book opening, you know, so that the hinge of the tabletop meeting Rene Monchati's chest, which is a luminescent cadmium red medium tone, maybe cadmium red light in this image, but I think it's darker in the reels. You you have this, yeah, like it's the it's the seam of the book. And you have fruit in the front. So I don't know, is she tempting? What? She was his mistress. She was his model. She was affiliated with another American painter who was also a film actor. Uh, that's why she was in Europe. But she and Bonard got together uh, at the same time. I think he and Marta, this was late, late teens. I think Marta had had flown the coop for a little while with some other man. And so I, I don't really know the full, like, I didn't get into it that deeply, but but. Renee moved away. She went to she went to Spain, and when she came back, a month after he married Marta, um, because he and Marta reunited, Renee Monchetti killed herself. We don't know why. Some accounts say that she just died in her apartment. We don't really know the story, but of course, he's clearly by this painting painted that same year. You know, she's a she's a ghost. She's real. She's as real, more real in this painting than Marta herself, who's wedged into this corner as 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 kind of playing the same role as the orange head in the in the previous painting that Jennifer chose. So, are you saying that this painting was done after her death, no. Renee's death, and so it was almost like a poignant memory of her? It would be pretty to think so. It's really hard to know when it was made, but I, but clearly just by the way she is painted, and again taking from the from the previous conversation about the models always being in movement and the paint being stitched together incrementally to create a volumetric web of events that resonate from exterior outward, we can surmise just based on the evidence of her intense physicality that she is very present for him because he's not painting from life. That's beautiful. 
<laughs> I mean, but you, but uh, okay, okay. Um, thank you. Um, I want to talk about grapes. I want to talk about because I saw this in the painting Jennifer chose as well, and and I think it was made mention of by Amy or one of you that in the little yellow sitting room at Le Canet, there was. If, if I recall correctly, there was in that yellow sitting room, it was a lot of yellow haloing the orange figure, but there was also some swipes of what looks like a cerulean blue or a kind of turquoise, the mixture of cerulean and yellow, which also appears here and, and is offset super suavely in my humble chromatic opinion by this deep, dark green in the foreground. I mean, that is just like, oh my God, he's mind-blowing. Um, but uh, a, a green round vegetable shape that makes no sense. Um, and then the green trim of stripes. What is on that? I don't know. <laughs> you, like, I mean, I, I just, I think I even took a close up of it and I just have no idea. Um, but um, it's, 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 who cares? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like the thing that he saw that was in the dark that he made green, that he wanted to contrast the Mars violet of the weird bell shape next to it. I mean, I have no idea what's happening in that basket. It's the unthought known. It is. It's the what? It's the unthought known. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, pipe in. <laughs> and then look at the green in contrast with that kind of circular shadow of those two colors on the right, both unthought knowns, but really pictorially like exerting strong force on anchoring that tabletop plane, which moves from a very dusky white at the bottom to a very hot white illuminating both the tabletop and the helmet of hair <laughs> of Rene Monchati, because the light coming from above is shining right on her, switching on her hair and the tabletop and illuminating in her beautifully painted hand, a cluster of grapes, which she has plucked from the turquoise in the basket that she's passing over the turquoise green on her plate and she's about to put it into her mouth. Oh my God, he's so delicious. Like just the passage of the grapes from turquoise to green to design to, to plucked chosen object to consumption is just this trailed in this counterpoint to the shadow of the cup in the way that it's going to move eventually into her right now closed mouth but we can complete the circuitry for ourselves. <laughs> and the grapes are moving from the ephemera of fruit and the vanitas tradition, which I don't think he's really thinking about because he's dealing, trafficking in unthought knowns. I mean, I just hijacked that phrase. It's so apt. It's a beautiful phrase. Yeah. And it's also the way people look when they're painting self-portraits. You know, you get into that dazed look where the mouth falls open and it comes across in the painting. It's so exciting. 
Elizabeth, I'm so excited. I can't hardly contain myself. I'm fidgeting with excitement. Finish your thought. And I just need to, I'm like, keep your mouth shut because I can't wait. Okay. So, so, all right. So you've got, you've got the turquoise. I will shut my mouth after this because I'm describing and then I better, I better shove off. But, but the circle on the right, which is like a deeper than the cerulean, but it moves into turquoise territory. Let's just say that then lightens up with yellow into lighter turquoise grapes. So we've already made that. But if you follow the circuitry from the cup to the grapes to the to the grapes in her hand it's kind of like counter arcing like he is just he is just riffing and riffing and then if you just forget all that and look at the shapes of the mars violet purple you know quadrant of shapes one vertical two horizontal big clunker mountain shapes and then the shadow below the basket they create a framework for the triangle and the bell shape on the left i mean he's just like he's all over it he's all over it but really what attracted me to the painting to begin with was the glossy red field of her shirt with the very vaporously painted hands painted out of the side of his brush from the deepest recesses of sense memory and then her helmet of hair because it really is as thick and glossy as a helmet, you know, kind of serving as a major shape, shielding, like, like almost a, yeah, like a shield, her interior softly toned orange and blue face that's quite dark and mixed um, in contrast with the fruit and the panel behind. And then weirdly wedged in there, almost like an avenging angel, the tilted head of Marta as an onlooker, although he's painted them together before. So that is my description of this painting. And it just continues to get better. And I just want to say that provenance wise, it was in the 1948 MoMA catalog of a retrospective Bonard had had. So critically in the canon, it was more, you know, probably regarded at that period of time because it didn't make it into the more recent MoMA or Met catalogs. And I think that the recent MoMA catalog, and by recent, I don't even know. I saw the show, so it was probably in the last seven years. Uh, it didn't make it into that, whereas a lot of the other works in the Aquavella did. They were also um, in like a lot of loans from Chicago and private collectors. Hot damn, Elizabeth Condon. It's oh. amazing. That was so fun. I can hardly stand it. Do you guys mind if I just, if please, I just. Oh, please, love to know no, your girl, thoughts come on, now. on the helmet. That was, that was just like, I almost just never want to simply look at a painting again. I just only want to talk about it like this and follow <laughs> someone else's engagement, like going around and around and around back and looping and repeating and illuminating each pass uh, you took through this painting was just like a little roller coaster ride for my happy painter brain. Um, so I just, a couple things just riffing off of, of what you mentioned. The two heads, really, how much are they like, like angels or biblical protagonists from like a Fra Angelico painting? And this helmet of golden hair is like a halo, like an, a halo. I mean, there's really this intimacy that just really reminds me of the, you know, the, those those scenes, um, religious scenes from Renaissance painting. And, and I don't know how much Bonard 
thought about the Venetas tradition, but I love that you brought it up because I was thinking about the, you know, Dutch Baroque still life tradition where, you know, you have things brought in from different, different seasons, different places on the globe, like only that, the you know, someone very wealthy might have access to. So when I see a platter of fruit, even from this time, from the twenties, you think, well, you know, how did they get oranges? Were oranges expensive? Where did they come from? Oranges and grapes, you know, are they like in season at the same time? So, so to me, that's a kind of, I don't know, that's like an interesting way to think about socioeconomic class and like, you know, what trade was like at that time. I know that's not the subject of the painting, but you can't help but kind of wonder about it. And then the pigments, you know, I was kind of trying to do some research, like what was Bernard's palette? Um, definitely cadmiums. I read that he was into the cobalt violet and cobalt blue. So just to think about these kind of like minerals inhabiting like the the atmosphere of the paint, these kind of like solid things that are pulverized into the goo of paint. And the unthought known moments, there are like these abstract punctuation marks that kind of, you wonder like, is that what she's staring at? These kinds of passages where sense breaks down and, and it's just sort of paint and color, it's physicality and, and, and the ethereal nature of like color optical effects. And then the last thing I just wanted to say, because I love, I love Mira Shore's writing. Yeah. And um, there was an essay, I don't know if you guys have read, but my favorite essay by her is called Figure Ground. It's from oh, 1990. Hell yes. And may I just read the final paragraph Please. of her essay? Because it sort of just says it all for me. Like everything I care about in painting is in this paragraph. So in French, terrain vague, like vague terrains, describes undeveloped patches of ground abutting urban areas, gray, weedy lots at the edge of the architectural construct of the city. Terrain vague, spaces of waves, the sea of liquidity, where the eye flows idly and uninstructed. These spaces are vague, not vacant. In such interstices, painting lives, allowing entry at just these points of imperfection, of neglect, between figure and ground. Between figure and ground, there is imperfection, there is air, not the overdetermined structure of perspectival space or the rigid dichotomy of positive and negative space, not the vacuumed, vacant space of painting's end, but the self-forgetful boredom of the area that glimmers around paint sometimes only microscopic interactions within a color, sometimes the full wonder of the dual life of paint mark and illusionism. Paintings are vague terrains on which paint, filtered through the human eye, mind, and hand, flickers in and out of representation as figure skims ground, transmitting thought. I love that. You know, that is one of my favorite essays, the other one being the military blood thing. Remember that essay? Anyway. The Osage um, tree, she had that great post recently yes. during the pandemic. She's really just, you She's know. She's my fucking hero. She is <laughs> absolutely amazing. But I mean, to that essay, it really does. It's almost like Bonard's rich tapestry of intersubjectivity of intisma decor, and there's one more that he unites. Uh, intisma decor and uh, japonisma, I'm just going to say that as a shorthand because I don't want to think about it too much. 
um, <laughs> this fullness of molecular air finds itself in Mirashore's parking lot as as the fire fog rolls in from Canada. You know, <laughs> I mean, it it just it's it's a bookending time in such an interesting way, pre World War II, post now. But the idea is still the same, that painting is the loam. I really love that. Thanks for reading that. Thumbs it up so much. I was just going to say, when you read that, Jennifer, it reminded me of how Elizabeth described the hands, like these, mm. you, you called them the deepest, the way they're painted in a very brushy, airy way, they reflect the deepest recesses of sense memory, I think he said. Mm. And um, that, that was a very interesting way to describe them because you're right. They're just, he's drawn hands a lot. He's kind of made a lot of painterly investigation on the still life in front. Everything's built up and thick and there's little highlight brush marks on every orb. That handle is a work of art. And then he, he gets to the human hands and he's just like, brush, 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 because it's like his muscle memory goes into to motion. And then I was also thinking about what Jennifer read, the Mirror piece about this sort of, I forgot exactly the phrase, but that little area, like you said, the, the abandoned lot, the, the, the boredom area of painting where it's just sort of dashed off. It's a residue of, of intentionality somewhere else and how that in itself has power and meaning and oh, very interesting ideas. That's what gets me so excited about painting is that you know, there are these places where we we don't even know always how to verbally express where and why, but there are these places where we get sucked into the vortex. There's some kind of meditation that disrupts the flow of a, of a, of a picture and, and we get to like go away. Like, where am I? And I, and I think that this Bernard painting that you chose, that's sort of what it's about. I mean, we're sort of observing this protagonist having that experience, but we're having it too. And that's really cool. You guys, I, I just wanted to point out for our listeners, I hope you guys have this painting in front of you. Look at her elbow that's resting on the table, our right, her left. And then look next to it, that thin brown line leading from the edge of the table or the triangle under her arm. I was wondering about that. What what do you think it is? I think it's his eye completing. I think it's a double scallop. I think he just drew that line. Like I don't it looks know like a telephone cord or some kind of knitting ball string or something. It, it comes but, out of nowhere. But in the deeper logic of the painting, it's the perfect counterpoint to the blue shadow underneath the oversized teacup that's filled with the soft pink blush of her cheek. I mean, it's just, and then the hands themselves are like Myrna Larson-esque geometric curves that are contrapustoed to each other. I just, okay, stop me. I also <laughs> love the way the circle is, it's like a festival of circles, like yeah, the, yeah. the circular head of a Rene Monchotti. Uh, yeah. And also like that very faded Naples yellow circle on the tablecloth that kind of borders the entire thing. It's completed by the little plate. Like it makes a full circle, like a halo around the fruit bowl, which is also a circle, which is next to circular dishes and things. And then she's holding a little cluster of circles. And it's like, it's just a, just kind of like orgy of, circ of circular forms. 
<laughs> you know, Amy, I think in I think in contrast with the, I mean, I think both your and Jennifer's paintings are like really going into the light work where, you know, the strokes diffuse even more. This is relatively tight. And as such, it's not kind of emblematic. And maybe that's why it was, it didn't feature in the more recent MoMA catalog, but I, you know, it's super constructed, but anyway, I just want, I don't know, but he is really just playing all these games and maybe these earlier tighter works. Cause you know, teens and stuff, or even preteens, he's pretty tight, but these are like, you know, harbingers of things to come or the Yeah. Prologue. Like it's, it's really locked in, but in the painting I selected, you can see that same kind of rocky promontory still there. And so there's always going to be sort of a geometricizing of space, I think, no matter how diffuse it looks. Don't yeah. you agree? But even let's, so, let's go there. Oh, okay. All right. All right. But before we talk about this one I selected, I need to give you a little amuse bouche, uh, wet, wet our whistle. I'm going to sneak another little guy in. There was a painting that. My friend noticed uh, something very curious about uh, the painting at the show was called Woman at Her Dressing Table, The Bathrobe. And it was from circa 1923, 45 by 21. So it's very vertical, like tall, tall vertical. And we see a hunched Mart on a green chair, maybe even filing her toenails. Like it's a very <laughs> realist portrait of Mart. She's like, her shoulders are hunched. It's, you know, not idealized in any way. And my friend who I was with at the time, um, Amy Finkbeiner's an actor and artist, uh, noticed that one of the feet has six toes. And it, it reminded me that it's, it's just so easy to put too many toes by accident. Like I find myself having <laughs> to count every time I do a foot, like, oh dear, there's seven toes on there. Yeah. Oh, I only did four. Where's that? Where's that other finger coming from? And I think when you paint the figure to anyone out there listening who paints the figure, I'm sure you can relate to Bonard's quandary where he accidentally did a six-toed mart. <laughs> um, but that was just my little amuse-bouche. The painting I really wanted to dive deeply into is called After Lunch from 1920. So it is the earliest of the paintings, oil on canvas, 30 by 46. And I just wanted to note, first off, he made so many after lunch paintings like if you google after lunch bonard you know 20 gazillion paintings are going to come up so um best of luck finding the right one but i'll try to describe in detail so you have like a visual cue um and we'll add links to all these works in the show notes of the podcast and images in the instagram carousel so you could see the images when you listen okay so without further ado first off we have a long horizontal painting versus the the one with Marth at her toilette in her bathrobe. This is a long horizontal painting. Its main colors are purpley blue, green, and orange. Typical of Bernard, the subject is the void. So you don't really have something, a figure like a Picasso-esque figure to study. You're kind of staring off into space and you're not really sure where Bonard wants you to look. So there's that diffusion we were talking about. We open on a garden table laid with snacks. And there is a lady, perhaps Mart, on the left in a blue cap, side profile and silhouette. And she is staring across at a blonde-haired child, or maybe it's Renee. Um, That's what I'm right. thinking. 
probably Renee. Renee, my catty, Renee Monchati. And they both are seated at a pair of tables covered with purple shaded white tablecloths, one square and one circular. And the the tables kind of march up the center of the canvas, kind of like a ziggurat. They have these kind of angular geometric outlines, and you kind of feel like you could climb them like a ziggurat, even though they're, you know, receding in space. And the ladies are in a garden, and they both have placed a single hand on the table. The faces are backlit against a sunny lit garden background. Is it an orange light suffused brick wall in the back or is it open space? We're not sure. And also they are set against a dense and undefined foliage area with bushes and trees and cool colors. And some have Birchfield like natural branch cathedral like archways. Shout out to Birchy as always. And this forest area generates a blue, white, green, gold light of its own. I say green, gold because it's one of my favorite colors in oil paint. So I mean, when I say green, gold, I don't mean a greenish gold. I mean the specific oil, oil color green, gold. Um, there are two garden light sources. So you have the cool internal light of the forest and the hot baking light on the garden architecture or wall. Okay, so on the tables, we see a foregrounded bunch of green gold grapes, grapes again, and orange yellow pears sitting in a white bowl that has a washy, ghostly, alizarin crimson and yellow shadow. And just behind, we see a row of objects, a tall white compote with some small creamy pink fruits in it, and a sap green jug pitcher with a trembly brown handle and a rectangular vermilion and yellow coffee or cookie tin. And I just wanted to pause in my description for a second to highlight a few quotes, because I'm a quote magpie and I love quotes. This was said in the press release. By emptying the interiors of his compositions, what Bernard termed a void in the middle, the viewer is forced to slowly pay attention to perceive the images hidden at the margins of his canvases. These out-of-focus, slowly-revealed forms capture the wavering uncertainty of peripheral vision. Or written another way, he puts in glimpsed forms hidden at the periphery. So I never knew myself that Bonard, like Bonard himself said that about putting a void in the middle. Like I always thought a critic sometime along the line had made that observation and it kind of stuck. but. It's funny because it's almost like Bonard took control of that idea, like put it out in the world, said, this is what I'm doing. Kind of like how a modern artist now has to write an artist statement. It feels very like modern of him because I could be wrong, but it feels like the artists of the past, they were written about, and that's kind of what goes into the, the legacy. But in this case, Bernard was like, hey, this is what I'm up to. I'm painting the void. And I just felt that very like kind of empowering for him. And it was also a revelation to know that the things I was sort of interested in in his compositions, which are this sort of like all overness or void subject was something he really intended. It wasn't just something a critic had said once in the past. But back to the painting and Bonard's playful peripheries. I want to talk about the face on the right. Mostly. This is what drew me to the painting. So let's let's say it's Renee. This purpley pink person 
with a single blue eye, is seated at the table with one hand upon it, as previously mentioned. But Bonard crops the hell out of them. Twice. First, the edge of the painting itself takes out a whole half of the face. Farewell, other eye and left cheek. Then, Bonard further obscures this leftover face remnant with a sprig of ivy that comes out of nowhere, floating in like a ghost. Why has the ivy popped in to levitate over this person's eye like a fig leaf, but for a face? Like, why did he make this choice? That was what, like, fascinated me. It's, it's like a radical move because it's exactly what you aren't supposed to do in a well-composed painting. Tangency, it's a no-no in art school. Having no central focus is a no-no. Like, listen to Picasso. Cropping out the subject of your painting almost completely, that's definitely a no-no. He's a bad art student. <laughs> that's why I love him. And, and yet, you know, he's a bad art student, but at this exhibition, it felt like a museum. They had the anti-humidity machine in the corner and there were four guards standing around in dark suits. And it felt, you know, like this bad art student had won somehow or like uh, gotten away with it or played this big joke on the world. And, but in a sincere way that I think was still a wonderful creative achievement. But you couldn't help thinking there was a little bit of a wink there from Bonard in this fancy museumified space. And I also just wanted to say really quickly that, ironically, there were no guards needed at the Arthur Dove show of paintings, which was like next door or close by at the gallery Alexandre, which I always like to pronounce that way because I took beginner French and I always have to be obnoxious. <laughs> but I ask, like, why is it OK for Dove to get a little moist? <laughs> you know, Dove gets to be a little moist, but not Bonard. And Dove is showing these delicate watercolors that are under glass even. And it made me just consider, like, is French 1930 better than American 1930 in the great reckoning, you know, of art history? And, and maybe it's just that Bonard was cheekier and tweakier, more of a beautiful rule breaker, but Maybe he was more idiosyncratic than Dove. I, I wonder, too, if maybe his candy-flavored paint, you know, versus Dove's darker gravitas conjures an escapist fantasy that we all want, like to be eternally staring off into the light after lunch, you know, a pre-déjeuner in the shade of a French garden. So um, da, 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 that is my reading of After Lunch 1920 by Bernard. Love it. Love it. Thank you. you guys. Can I address Amy's point about the void? Yes. In the press release for the gallery, they quote Dita Amori, the present of objects, still life in Bernard's late paintings from Metropolitan Museum of Art 2009. A master of presence, Bonard transformed discrete, often mundane moments of time into timeless images. And yet Bonard was also a master of absence. We glean from many of the inanimate objects in his interiors a sense of those who've laid the table, moved a plate, or taken a fruit. The possibility of re-entry, that someone who is absent will once again intrude into our field of vision or into our mind's eye is always left open. That's one thought. But then another thought I had, and this is really exciting, is, or it's exciting me, is that the void, like, the latest works that really, okay, 
long story short, Martha in the bathtub, Mm -hmm. the body inhabits the void. And then in the very late self-portraits, he's in the mirror disappearing before our eyes and his own eyes. And so he repopulates the void, not with vegetables as in this, I believe this painting is 1928. 1920. It's very early. Oh, really? Okay. So he takes 1920. And by 1947, upon his death, he's dematerializing in the void. Love. (laughs) (laughs) I also read something by Jed Pearl, Jed Pearl for the New Republic. I found a review, which was interesting because I guess this talks about the wittiness of obscuring that eyeball with a sprig of ivy. It's very funny Mm -hmm. to me, cheeky to use the British expression. But Jed Pearl said he he has a quality that might be characterized as as perceptual wit and instinct for what will work in a painting. Almost invariably, he recognizes the precise point where his voluptuousness, which I found a very interesting descriptive word, may be getting out of hand where he needs to introduce an ironic note, which I would argue is the, the sprig of ivy and the cropping. Um, Bernard's wit has everything to do with the eccentric nature of his compositions. He finds it funny to sneak a figure into the corner. (laughs) His metaphoric caprices have a comic edge as when he turns a figure into a pattern in the wallpaper. And when he imagines a basket of fruit as a heap of emeralds and rubies and diamonds, he does so with the panache of a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And I really got that review. I thought Jed Pearl was spot on. That's kind of what transforms to 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 go against Picasso is to say this is what makes these paintings really special. That's why there's a humidity machine and guards. It's it's that witty tweaking of the bad art student. All that is very idiosyncratic, and it's not just a beautiful garden. I, I you know it's it's more. Amy, I want to say I'm laughing really hard because. <laughs> Well, I think Jed, I mean, I'm mad at Jed Pearl right now for, I can't remember why, but something he wrote. Oh, I remember (laughs) why. Um, He wrote some screed against uh, painters showing like two different kinds of work side by side. Like he took real issue with it, like make up your mind, like kind of like Picasso with Bonard. Uh And I was like, that's it. I'm done with Jed Pearl. Yeah, I I feel you. No, 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 no. no. He's a a brilliant writer. Like there's no way I'm going to not read him because- He's just such a great formal analyst. But anyway, why I started laughing was because I thought he's putting a fig leaf. He's putting a fig leaf on his own painting. Yeah. <laughs> on and the then, face. On, as if he was slapping it on his, his own crotch. Like, it's just really funny. And, so funny. and then and then I also see the nascent stirrings of the games he's playing on the painting that I chose and subsequently on the one Jennifer chose in the leaf formations but there's something else you said that I have to go back to but but the the stems on the apples and the way that the plate is edged off on the right lower right with the blue in counterpoint so that the that the circles in the fruit start to revolve at speed with the movement of the brown stems of the apples and the turn of the of the plate in the blue as the as the shadow hits it and how that's echoed in the cellular structure of the ivy behind her and in the tree mm. trunks. And then also on the left-hand side, as if those stems had been cat claws going back to Le Chat. Yeah, Mon Chatee, Mon Chatee. Yes, we, uh, 
clawing at Marta's robe, you know, these strange blue folds that look like desperate claw marks. Okay, so formally, and then also is that a piece of bread at the end of the table that's transforming from the ruddy warm tones of the retaining wall into the deeper red tones of the tea container. Just curious. Um, but you were making a point about what Pearl was saying about his wit. Well, I guess that's yeah. it. Yeah, I guess I guess sticking a fig leaf on himself. I thought I had something <laughs> else, but I can't remember it. And a part of me feels like all that being said, that whole painting hinges on the trembliness of that little jug handle too. If you if you're in person, everything you know is sort of wispy and and patterny, and you're in this beautiful French garden with gorgeous light, and then there's just this deeply felt trembly brown stroke that forms the handle, and there's something very defined, very intentional about about that in in a painting that's a little bit more about diffuse atmosphere. Like we're just hanging on. That's the one place where it's like, okay, there's there's sense here. But I I love I just have to say, Amy, I love your description of the ziggurat form <laughs> in between them. And and just kind of thinking about that, like a ziggurat of lunch snacks, this kind of stepwise recessed triangle, and then the that tapered triangle of the bowl inverting it and then the the triangle formed by the tree branches behind that and then you find these little triangles between the objects and like that's the sort of cheap you know cheeky sense of humor happening there I feel like and this idea that this the the lavender ziggurat is separating these two figures who ha have hardly anything to do with each other ha like considering that they just ate lunch together they seem so dejected dislocated from each other. And, and the one figure is like a byproduct of the lavender table. She's all lavenders. And the other one is more connected to the trees and the ivy. She's more of like, you know, the quote unquote nature girl. And the other one was like the table snack, the domestic <laughs> girl. And thinking kind of back to, to the mention of Monet and his, his lavender, you know, that the critique of the impressionists at the time was that they were all possessed by violetta mania they just saw purple everywhere and it's <laughs> right. like diseased retinas i think that's what the the crit critic had written <laughs> yeah i see the sort of you know the residue of the disease in that tablecloth and i'm loving it but, that's so insightful yeah i just i can't believe how unhappy they are um considering they have a, a table full of delicious treats grapes and tea. I mean, maybe I'm a bit like connecting the dots too much, but isn't it interesting that he's got his two mistresses because he's not yet married, Mart, two mistresses on either side of the table. And you could argue that the things on the table represent himself, you know, sometimes still life can be self-portraiture. And, totally. you know, and, and, and then, and then if you go even further, you're like, well, you know, is, is the purpley Renee using more to Bernard now? Like, is she becoming mm -hmm. one with him or is, is, is Mart now the outsider? She's not part of, anyway, I'm going a little crazy with my over-interpretation. Oh no, I love it. But, but the way you, the it. way you noticed that was so interesting to me in context of what was going on in his personal life. Totally. I, 
I want to jump in about Dove because you did raise the relationship of the two shows and the significance of Bonard being guarded and Dove not being guarded. And I think that going back to Jed Pearl, the wit and the abundance, the need to curb even the abundance, even in this early work, I think that Dove as part of the new world, and it's so typically American to reduce and distill something to the essential, almost logo. Although I wouldn't say that about Dove. I would only say that about America in general. But, yeah. but Dove, you know, is transforming the landscape into simplified shapes in a pared down way, mostly. Whereas Bonard just amplifies the echoing abstract relationships of, you know, here the triangle, the forked structure. The um, chaos. He he likes, he embraces complexity. He wants more and more complexity on top of complexity versus distilling down to a simplified form. Yeah. So I don't know in terms of value. I mean, and I also think just old world to new world that Bonard is coming from such a rich tradition of the decorative panels and the Nabi tradition and the large scale of transforming those decorative. Well, I felt like I was like bursting in there, like with a, with an eagle screech. What do you mean? <laughs> like America, oh. you know, like <laughs> America, you know, why is it, why is the American getting, uh, why can't, why does he get to get moist? That's not fair. It's the same period. <laughs> but I'm just somebody who's really like, uh, I've I've really read a lot about the Stieglitz circle, and I really love that sort of lore of that group and what they did and they did to transform American art. And Dove was part of that group, and so I have this real soft spot for that group. And so that's why I went in there with my eagle wings flapping, like, "What's wrong with Americans?" Um, just because I was just like indignant. On the part of Dove. But then, you know, if you were like, would you like to hang a complicated, weird facial fig leaf painting in your home by Bonard? Or would you like, like this very simplified um, orb in the sky by Dove? I probably would choose the Bonard. You know, I feel like there's more meat on the bone. It's a little yeah. less expected. I mean, not to take away Dove has, um, there's something about his spiritualism and the way he brings that to nature, I find very exciting. And the, the way mm -hmm. he abstracts nature is very exciting, but there's just something so layered and unexpected about Bernard that you just can't predict what he's going to do. And I find that very exciting. Absolutely. That's well said. Yeah, that's well said. All right. Well, I think that we'll wrap up here, but I almost don't want to wrap up because it was like literally the most magical conversation ever. I can't believe how fun it was to talk about Bernard with you both. But before we end, and I also wanted to remind people that the episode right before this episode um, features Elizabeth again, and she's discussing a Sam Francis painting that is also a wonderful episode. So if you love this sort of episode, don't miss the one right before this. And then I wanted to come to you both and ask you what's coming up now. Um, I can, I'll definitely put your websites and Instagrams in the show notes, but if you want to promote any kind of shows coming up, please do. Uh, how about you, Jennifer? Um, well, there's a few weeks left of the show that I have with my husband, David Humphrey at the Catskill Art Space. Wonderful um, show. I loved it. 
I was so happy to see you at the opening. So that that was really mega, like super special moment for, for he and I, because we've never had a chance to do that before. And um, I'm going to be in a show coming up in Cleveland at a place called Contemporary Art Matters with some other painters who I love. Only Hillary Doyle's name is popping into my head at this moment. Love Hillary. Uh-huh. I love her too. I love her paintings. And then I'm going to be in another show curated by Robert Otto Epstein, whose work I love great guy, great artist in a space in Brooklyn. I don't know if it's someone's studio or if it's a gallery, but there's some artists in it who I love, including Kristen Scheel and Alicia Gibson and Irina Jurek. So I have some fun, a couple of fun summer shows coming. I love those artists you mentioned. And and then Jennifer, do you want to also say the one at Elizabeth Hazan's? Oh gosh, boy, am I dumb. I'm in a show, (laughs) platform project space that's celebrating the five-year anniversary of Elizabeth's having that space in her studio and just a big shout out to her because she's such a great supporter of other artists' work and we love her. Amazing. Those are all exciting. So um, please check those out if you'd like to see Jennifer's work in person. And then Elizabeth, uh, how about you? What's coming up? Okay, well, On Through an Undetermined Time is a mural I painted with other people in Highland Park in Brooklyn for Norte Mar. Love them. And that is well worth checking out just for the park itself, which is like an Olmsted tribute, if not tangential. Um, I'm in a group show through June 17th at Catherine Markell, curated by Marilla Palmer, called Rainbow Rococo. Love um, that title. Oh, God, it's really an offbeat and weird show. Like, it's kind of like the psychological output from her own work in all the directions teased to their ultimate destinations. (laughs) And then I'm getting ready for a show, which if people are going to Miami in December, uh, will open on December 3rd at Emerson Dorsch, my gallery in Miami. Exciting. That'll be a solo show. Yeah. So you, you must be busy. I see everybody, um, both Elizabeth and Jennifer in their studios now, and there's some incredible work going on behind them. Um, and we're all wearing glasses because we're I such uh, intelligent nerds. That's why. That's why we're wearing our glasses because we're so intelligent and we're, yeah. uh, we're intelligent nerds. It, it has nothing to do with ocular degeneration or anything like that. No, it has nothing to do with the fact that I can't see a damn thing anymore. No. Yeah. Um, well, guys, I just, words fail. Uh, this was like amazing and I just so much hope, I hope we can do it again soon and um, thank you so much for spending your time on Pep Talks and just delighting me and, and hopefully the listeners thank you very very much <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much okay bye guys bye bye thank you you've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists a bow a solemn bow to the bodacious Bonardian brilliance on display in this episode by my beloved guests, Jennifer Coates and Elizabeth Condon, who really brought the paintings to life in audio format, which is no mean feat. Thank you both so much for coming back on the pod to remind me how fun it is to talk to other painters about painting. Find Jennifer and Elizabeth online, jennifer at jenniferlcoates.com and at jennifercoates666 on Instagram, and elizabeth at elizabethcondon.com, and on Instagram at elizabethcondon. And don't forget, that's Elizabeth with an S. All the upcoming shows that they mentioned are linked in the show description of this episode. You can find me and the podcast on Instagram too, at Pep Talks for Artists. 
and on the blog artspiel.org, where the episodes are published monthly as written articles. Okay, that's it. I really appreciate you stopping by, and I'll see you next time.